you can just you can just kind of deal with it. We get some muffled muffled stuff. Right. So my so we just saw Peter Gray, mm-hmm. and I have to apologize because I was like. He's not very. He's not a very dynamic speaker. Mm-hmm. He was very dynamic mm-hmm. to me. Like, and I think what happened is because when I saw him at that Sudbury school, like there were so many kids like playing in the back, and they had his sound wired through like a bass amp. Mm-hmm. Like you could just you couldn't hear anything, and uh, and tonight you could hear him so clearly. And everything it, was quiet. Yeah, and everything was quiet. So I just I just wanna say like like wow. I was just floored. And I yeah. wanted to hear some of your thoughts. Mm-hmm. Some of your response to it. Yeah, I thought he was a pretty impressive speaker. I mean he hardly looked at his notes at all. But he just rattled off everything. Um and the way that he presented it, that in the situation that he was in, he's speaking at a private school um, that obviously is not utilizing everything that he stands for. Uh, Almost anything that he stands right. for. <laughs> um, but yet, I mean, he presented the information in a way that's like, yes, we can do something about this. It was good, um, but he was also challenging them. Like, come on, guys. Yeah. School is actually terrible for children. Yeah. Um, and here's why. I mean, he had a study for everything that he said. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I started, I mean, I started thinking about, I started trying to imagine what you were thinking because we've had so many conversations about our kids and the and the ideas that he's sharing here. And I, I don't know, just like what were were there like aha moments that you're like, oh crap, like <laughs> I've been struggling with and that is just speaking right to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one point in particular that I mean, he just talks about how kids want to be with other kids away from adults. That's Kids realize that that's kind of almost their mission, and that's their a way that's going to help them develop and grow up, even though they don't specifically think that. But I have been thinking so much lately that I don't spend enough time with the kids during the day in their playtime. But he just sort of confirmed that that's actually best for me to not ignore them, but to not be in their space because they learn more, they develop more, they create more um, when they're away from adults with just each other. Though I don't, even when I'm there, I don't solve their problems for them, but if I'm just not there at all, they have to deal with every part of it themselves. That's so much more beneficial than 
yeah. than me being there and thinking that I'm helping by offering to read to them, which is good. But and a lot of times they do want that, but it's almost more beneficial for me to just not be there. Yeah. Like that happened today. So I was in the play space and with all three of them, and I read a couple books. Noah really wanted me to. And then I said, okay, I'm going to go make lunch. Left him in there, and Noah goes, okay, I'm going to read now. And he sat there and read the book with the pictures, because that's his favorite, and he knows most of the words in there. <laughs> um, and he did. He read it. But... And then he played with the girls for a while, and that was it. Now, I pride myself on being able to read people pretty well. But I think it's funny because I don't think I actually can read you very well. I can read when you're uncomfortable about something. Or maybe I just read too far into things. But I imagined as as I was listening to this, and maybe it was my idea and I'm projecting it on you, is I'm imagining that you're thinking, oh, my goodness, we have to start Self-Directed Academy. We have to find a way to make this happen. But now that we're talking, I don't hear one <laughs> iota of that idea. And to me, it was so strong. It's so obvious that this has to be done today. Like, I have to make a flyer when I get home. I have to quit my job. I have to find a place that will let me have children there. And, like, and we just have to start signing people up. And from what I gather from your reaction is... That is the last thing that's on your mind. <laughs> I did not think about that at all. In fact, I thought, my only thought about that was, I'm glad we have more than one child. So now we can homeschool successfully because they can all play with each other. <laughs> <laughs> and then we have like a social group <laughs> of a gang of mod children. <laughs> so we obviously have a lot more <laughs> learning to do about well at least i do because i i don't know what's on your mind at all because i think that i do <laughs> and then i don't we play with language and that's how children learn language nobody teaches children their native language children learn their language playfully we children play games with every in every culture children play games with rules and that's how they learn to follow rules in fact and talk I gave earlier today, I talked about how actually all play has rules, at least implicit rules, and this is how children learn to abide by rules. It's also how they learn to create rules. It's how they learn, in, in a sense, you could say the principles of democracy, how to, how to create rules, how to enforce rules, how to follow rules, and so on. Children practice that in play. In every culture, they're made with rules. They play imaginative games, and imagination is what distinguishes our way of thinking from that of our we can think of things that aren't actually there. When, when we're being highfalutin, we call this hypothetical reasoning. We can think hypothetically. We can think about things, we can think about things that don't actually exist. And that allows us to become inventors. It allows us to think about tomorrow. It allows us to plan. And little children are practicing that all the time when they're playing in an imaginative way. You know, pretending, you imagine three or four-year-olds pretending that there's a troll under the bridge. That's hypothetical. It's not really a troll under the bridge, but they're pretending there's a troll. It's hypothetical reasoning. 
If there's a troll under the bridge, what does that mean? Oh, we've got a bad under the bridge. That's deduction, hypothetical deductive reasoning, the highest order of human reasoning. Three-year-olds are already practicing that in play. We play, it, we play it building things. We're the animal with opposable thoughts. We have, for as long as we've been homo sapiens, we've built our environment. We build tools, we build shelters, we build means of conveyance, and so on. And so it's no surprise that children all over the world, when they have lots of loud opportunities, play, play at building things. They're learning how to use those opposable thoughts. They're learning how to use those parts of the brain that, that plan what it is you're going to build and then allow you to carry out and actually build what you're planning to do. And they play with the tools of their culture. They're drawn, it's as if they come into the world looking around and say, what are the tools that I really have to know how to master in this culture that I'm growing up in? So hunter-gatherer children play with bows and arrows and digging sticks and fire and dug out canoes and so on. Nobody has to tell them to do that. They just naturally do it. In our and farming cultures, agricultural cultures, they play with farming instruments, they naturally do with a lot of anthropological work on this. What do kids play in our culture today? What is the most important tool of our culture today? No question what the important tool in our culture today is a computer. We should not be surprised that our children are around the computers. Anybody with eyes and a brain can look around and see that's the most important tool to master in our culture today. No matter what you're going to do growing up, you're going to be using it. So, um, kids in our culture are drawn to computers like flies to mint, like flies to fly paper. You know, they're, they're uh, and we worry about it, but I would worry more about the kid who's not interested in computers, <laughs> to tell you the truth. So, that's uh, not that I would worry too much, because there's a lot of ways actually to make a living in our culture. And no matter how else children are playing, they want to play with other children. They want to play with other children away from adults because the most important skill that everybody has to learn is how to get along with peers. We cannot survive alone. We cannot survive as individuals. We are a species that absolutely depends upon cooperation with other people. And children are practicing cooperation with other people when they're playing with other children and, and where there's no adults there to solve their problems, where they're learned, they have to learn how to negotiate with their peers in order to happy or not, or else they're not going to have friends to play with. So when we intervene and interfere with their play, or when we try to control their play, we're depriving them of the opportunity to learn by trial and error how to get along with other people. It's not something that can be taught, it's only something that can be learned from experience. So as I said, from a biological perspective, play is nature's way of ensuring that children and other young mammals will learn what they must to survive and thrive uh, in the world that they're growing up in. From a religious perspective, we might say that play is God's gift that makes life on earth worthwhile. Imagine life without play. What would be the point? And should we be surprised that when we take play pretty much away from children, that depression occurs? I have one of the one another play researcher, Brian Sutton Smith, who died ago, used to say that the opposite of play is not work, it's depression. And it makes a lot of sense. I don't say that because the grammar doesn't work for me. These are different parts of speech. But I would say that the opposite of play, that, that, that the absence of play creates depression. And that's part of what I'm going to be talking about here today. So we are living in, as I titled this talk, Play 
deficit disorder, a natural crisis, a national crisis, and how to solve it locally. You've got a handout, and the, and the handout is an outline of what I'm going to be talking about. Um, and, um, and so I want to first say something just a little bit more about what play is. I've talked about some different ways of playing, but I want to just give you uh, very briefly, I talked about in much more detail than the faculty earlier on today about this. But what do I actually mean by play? And I'll be very brief about this, but, um, uh, but if you look at the handout, I'll, I'll just briefly say something about each of these aspects of the definition of play. I regard an activity of play that has these four characteristics. First, that it's self-chosen and self-directed. Play is how children learn to initiate their own activities and to control their own activities. So that's why I would not count adult-directed sports, for example, as play. We talk about playing football or playing basketball. Uh, that's okay. Words can be used in different ways. But for me, you're playing football or playing basketball or playing baseball. If you are a bunch of kids and you go and make up your own game. You're not playing it, by my definition of play, if you're going to an adult-directed game. Because the, the because part of what you're learning in play, part of the definition of play, is you have chosen this yourself. And you are directing it yourself. And as a result of that, you are learning how to control your own behavior, not be controlled by somebody else. You are learning how to make your own choices. And when you're playing with other kids, you're learning how to negotiate these things without some adult authority figure doing it for you. So that's the first characteristic of play, self-chosen, self-directed. The second characteristic is that it's intrinsically motivated. You're doing it for its own sake. You're not doing it for some reward outside of itself. You're not doing it to get an A on a report card. You're not doing it to get a trophy. You're not doing it to get praise from your parents or from a teacher. You're not doing it to improve your resume. You're not doing it to lose weight. You're doing it just because you want to do it. Now, to many people, that seems like a waste of time. Why should you do something just because you want to do it? And I, and to that, I would have two. I would have a lot of different answers. One of which is how sad life would be if we never did anything just because we want to do it. If we only did things because we felt that we, this is something that I have to do. In other words, life would all be work and none of it would be play. What's the point of life if you're not going to do things that you want to do? You can tell if something is really play if the kid is doing it even though everybody's trying to get him not to do it, right? Even though everybody's trying to get him not to do it. Now, you know how graduation speakers, whether it's high school graduation or college graduation, implore the new graduates, follow your passions, right? Follow your passions. If all you've been doing is what other people have been telling you to do, if all you've been doing is school, where it's, it's a directive kind of school, you're always being told what to do and how to do it, and out of school you're in adult-directed sports, <coughs> you're being monitored and supervised and directed by how do you have any idea what your passions are, even what a passion would be? Passions are discovered in play. Play is following your passions. And I've done a lot of research showing that kids who have really ample opportunity to play develop real passions through their play and very often go on to careers that truly are following their passions. They're not going on to a career just because they heard you can make a lot of money doing this. They're not going on to a career just because it seems to have a lot of prestige. They're not going on to a career because their parents say, 
oh, this is what you ought to be doing. This is the crown tradition to do this or that. They're going on to a career because this is what I'd love to do. And I figured out how to make a living doing it. And it's meaningful to me to do this. That's the kind of career that leads to a happy life versus no matter how prestigious the career is. We've got a lot of unhappy doctors. We've got a lot of unhappy lawyers. We've got a lot of unhappy business people. We've got a lot of even more unhappy people in the world of finance who went into it because of the prestige, because of the money, and they're living miserable lives. The far more important thing in the choice of career is that you're doing something that you love to do, but how can you choose what you love to do if you haven't learned what you love to do? And you learn what you love to do as you play. So that's the fact that it's intrinsically motivated, that you're doing what you love to do. Third characteristic of play is that it's guided by mental rules. People talk about unstructured play. There's no such thing as unstructured play. Play is always structured. And it's always structured by the players themselves. It's never random. Random activity is not play. So imagine even what might seem like the wildest kind of a couple of boys in a play fight. They're swinging sticks at one another, they're chasing one another around, they're wrestling, they're pushing one another down, and so on and so forth. What distinguishes that from a real fight? The thing that distinguishes that from a real fight is the real fight doesn't have rules. This has rules. The rules don't have to be stated because the boys know it implicitly. No kicking, no biting, no scratching, no really hurting the other person. If you're bigger and stronger than two, you have to self-handicap. If you throw somebody, you have to throw somebody on a, on a mattress or on a, on a pillow or on a pile of leaves, something soft. The play fight is actually the opposite of the real fight. The purpose of the real fight is to hurt the other person, to drive the other person away, to end the encounter. The purpose of a play fight is to have fun, and for you to have fun, your partner has to also have fun, or they will quit. So, and, the, and it's the rules that allow you to pursue this and have fun without actually driving the other person away. But I could go through any example of play, anything that you would consider play, I have to tell you what the rules are of that play. So children are practicing restraint, practicing controlling their behavior in play. And fourth characteristic of play that it is that it always involves at least some element of imagination. That's more true for some kinds of play than for others. And I already said a little bit about that. Imagination is the highest form of human thought. It's thinking about things that aren't actually physically present. Thinking about them in some kind of logical way. And children are practicing that. And certainly when they're little children when they're playing fantasy games are practicing that all the time. But I would argue in all forms of Children are imagining, are putting themselves into an imaginary situation, and they're thinking about in this situation, it doesn't exist in the real world, this is modified in the real world. What is it that I have to do? What are the consequences of this? And they're learning to think like scientists as a result of that. So that's what I mean by play. Now, over the past, so that's getting to the kind of point of what I put in as the title of this talk. Over the course of the past 60 years, basically over my adult lifetime, so you have an idea how old I am, we have seen a huge, not just a small, but a huge decline in children's freedom to play in this country. It's not just in our country, it's occurring elsewhere in the world as well. This is really an international crisis that we're experiencing. It's a huge decline. It has occurred gradually. So it crept up on us. We didn't necessarily see it because over a 60-year period, from one year to the next, the change was small. 
even from one decade to the next, it was not huge. It would have been noticeable, but not huge. So it's possible for somebody in today's world to think, well, this is normal. This is not that different from 10 years ago. This is not all that different if you're a young parent from when you were a kid, right? But it is very different from when I was a kid. It was very different from your grand, from your when your grandparents were kids. Let me give you an illustration of a little study that sort of dramatically shows this. This happened to be done in the UK where the same thing is happening as here. This was a study of three generations of uh, in families that had lived in the same place over three generations. And they asked the grandparents, when you were between six and ten years old, how far away from home, and this was the same home now that they were living in that, neighborhoods hadn't changed much, no more dangerous than before. Uh, when you were between six and ten, how far away could you go from home? Uh, it doesn't make any sense to take the average, because some of them could go definitely, there's no limits, they could go wherever they wanted. So if you took the median, the median response was five kilometers away. So it's between the age of six and 10. When they asked the parents, how far could you go when you were between the age of six and 10, the answer was half a kilometer. An order of magnitude difference, right? When they asked the parents, how far can your children, who are between six and 10, go? The answer was nowhere, nowhere. They could not leave their yard between the age of six and ten. That change illustrates, that illustrates the kind of change that we've made in children's lives. When I was a kid in the 1950s, by the age of five, I could go anywhere in town on my bicycle. Granted, I lived in a relatively small village, but in that very same village today, which I've visited since then, the village is just as small, just as safe, just as little traffic as ever before. In fact, it's probably safer because crime has actually gone down over the years since then, children are not allowed to do that now, in that very same village that I grew up in. Huge difference, absolutely huge difference. So we have, we have changed children's lives dramatically. In some sense, this is a new experiment in raising children. The only, the, the never in the past have children been so constrained, so limited in their freedom as our children are today. The only exceptions, and I talked to, I presented this idea in front of anthropologists who study children worldwide and study it historically well, and nobody's ever contradicted me. The only exceptions are in times of slavery, where children were slaves, and in times of really intense child labor, where children were working in factories, coal mines, and so on, six or seven days a week, and did not have freedom. We decided by the end of the 19th century, we decided that child labor of that sort and slavery was not appropriate for children. And we freed them up from that. And we, and we began to go back to a world which would be a little more like that hunter-gatherer world where children have lots of opportunity to play. Howard Chudikoff, who wrote a book uh, on the history of children in play in America, refers to the first half of the 20th century as the golden age of children's play, roughly from 1900. He puts the turning point in about 1955. Between 1900 and 1955, children had lots of freedom to play. They continued to have lots of freedom to play for some period of time, but beginning around 1955, he puts, for various reasons, he puts that as the turning point. Adults began to chip away on children's freedom gradually. 
and it has occurred through a number of means. So basically, if we, and, and so ever since about 1955, with every decade, children are less free than they were in the previous decade. So the, so the way we took away, we've gone forever about sociological reasons for this, but roughly they fall into two categories. One has to do with an increase in fear. We, the media has convinced us that it's dangerous out there for children, so we think it's dangerous out there somebody's going to snatch our child away, some terrible thing is going to happen to our child if we're not watching our child all the time. So parents have become convinced that it would be negligent to allow their children to just go out and play without some adult there supervising and directing. So that's one of the reasons. This increased fear has been spread by the media, spread by some experts. In some sense, experts' job is to warn you of all the dangers. What they're not warning you about is the danger of not allowing and that's what I'm talking about now. So that's one reason. Another reason has to do with the increased weight of school. So when I was a child in the 1950s, we had school. But school was nothing like the big deal that it is today. When I was in elementary school, and I don't remember the earlier grades, but I remember fifth and sixth grade very well. And at that time, sixth grade is still part of elementary school. We had six hour school days, just like most kids do today, although some kids have seven hour school days. Um, but two of those hours were outdoors playing. We were only indoors four hours a day, and we were never indoors more than an hour at a time. We had a half hour recess in the middle of the morning, a half hour recess in the middle of the afternoon, and a full hour of lunch. And we were free to play in whatever way we wanted. There weren't teachers telling us we couldn't do this and we couldn't do that. As far as I can remember, they didn't even watch us. We were out there playing, we were playing snowball fights, we were climbing trees, we were throwing knives not at each other. In those days, at that, at that time, all boys carried jackknives and we played all kinds of games with knives. We played, so we were really and truly playing. We wrestled in the snow, we did all this kind of stuff. And this was expected. This is what child is all about. We teachers expected that. Nobody believed that children should be able to sit in their seats more than an hour at a time and doing worksheets. That's not a normal childhood, right? But over the years, we've gradually changed that. Not only have we, so also there was no homework in elementary school. Once in a while, the teacher would say, you know, the, would give us an assignment to write a poem or a story, something fun like that to bring in to share with the rest of the class, and, uh, that, and we would do that. But never did we carry books back and forth or worksheets back and forth. Never were parents asked to be assistant teachers and monitor homework and so on and so forth. Think of the difference between that and the development. By the time of what was then called junior high school, in high school we had some homework, but nothing like today. They hadn't yet invented honors classes and advanced placement classes and all of that kind of stuff. So if you were a bright kid, you could do your, you could do your homework during school easily enough, and you still didn't have homework even if you were. You had lots of time to play. Lots of kids had hobbies in those days. You'd go home and you would, you would do things that you wanted to do, and that's where you would develop passions. You had the hunter-gatherer opportunities as well as school because school didn't engulf your life the way it does for so many children. So that's part of it. And the other part, another part of it is that this attitude, what a, this attitude that, sh that comes from school, 
that he really is that children develop best when they're guided and taught and directed and controlled by adults. And that what children do on their own is kind of a waste of time. This attitude has, has oozed out of the school walls and infected all of society. So parents begin to believe that their children's play is just a waste of time, unless their children are clearly learning something in it, which means that they have to be in some kind of a thing that's like a course. It could be a karate class, or it could be adult-directed soccer, or it could be this or that. And I don't, I'm not totally against those things. Kids enjoy those things who get into really into it. But that does not substitute for play. And that is not, they're not learning the same things in that that they're learning to play because it's adult directed and because it's because it's achievement oriented rather than being done purely for fun, rather than being done because you are enjoying it and you're following your own interests and you're developing your passions by doing it. So we have substituted these organized activities that are not play, and we call them play. We think that. We're giving our kids the equivalent of play by doing that. But I'm arguing that although they may be fun, and I'm not against them, and I played, I played high school sports, I played basketball, and, but that, that followed after a lot of just pickup games. You go out to the field and you create your own game. This is the way most kids played when I was a kid. And playing the formal sport followed that. Some kids got really fascinated wanting to play it in a more formal way. We start out with little kids with formal sports. I mean, this is ridiculous. Four and five year olds playing adult directed soccer instead of just going out and kicking the ball around and having fun and chasing one another around and doing whatever it is they want to do. It's as if we believe we're trying to train them to be professionals when they're little kids and they haven't even had time to generate an actual interest in this activity. So that's what we have done. That's, those are some of the reasons why play has declined. So now I want to go on, what are the consequences of the decline of play? And um, so now we're on Roman numeral three on the handout. So over the same period of time, the same 60 year period of time, that there has been a huge decline in children's freedom. There has been an equally huge, again gradual, but overall huge increase in all kinds of mental disorders in childhood and early adulthood. The most well-documented are depression and anxiety. And it's not just that we're identifying depression and anxiety that we didn't identify before, or people feel freer to talk about it, or that we have different ways of measuring it. There are certain clinical questionnaires that assess anxiety and depression that have been unchanged over the decades. So for example, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory includes a scale for uh, depression, the depression scale in it. And this has been given unchanged to high school age uh, kids, uh, to normative groups of high school age kids since the 1940s. And it turns out that beginning around 1960, with every decade, there's more and more depression being measured by that. Such that if you look at what would be the cutoff for suspected major depressive disorder as it's defined today, the rate of major depressive disorder by the year 2000, which is the last date for which I have data 
for that uh, particular test, 2007, that was 19 years ago. By the year 2000, the rate of major depressive disorder was between five and eight times what it was in the 1950s. We know by other measures, we don't know from this same measure, but we know by other measures that depression has risen even since then. And simply continued on this trend since 2000 of continuing to take more and more play away from children, and we've continued to increase depression. I would not, I would estimate that the rate of what we diagnose as major depressive disorder today is well more than 10 times what it was in the 1950s. Similarly, there's another uh, Taylor's Manifest Anxiety Scale been given ever since the 1950s in normative groups. And again, the data that I have goes up to about the year 2000, maybe a year or two later. And again, it's something like an eightfold increase in estimate of the, um, uh, general, what would today be categorized as generalized anxiety disorder. There was a study done uh, just four years ago by the American Psychological Association, Anxiety in America. And they determined from this survey, a very well-designed scientifically survey, that high school kids are the most stressed out people in America. And 83% of them attribute their stress to school. We've got, this, is, this should be giving us something to think about. The suicide rate among school-age children is now six times what it was in the 90s. And there's been a recent spike in that just in the last few years, which we've been reading about. Suicide is becoming a serious problem and one of the major causes of death among children and teenagers, and especially the teenagers and young adults. Suicide was essentially non-existent uh, in the 1950s for the children. Interestingly, the suicide rate for older people is going down. The suicide rate for people my age is way lower than We've made, a, we've made the world better for old people. We've made the world in many ways worse for children. Shame on us for doing that. So that's, um, that's depression and anxiety. Now there's another, um, there's another questionnaire, um, which I think is very telling. Rotter's internal external locus of control scale. And there's a version of this for school-aged children. And this has been given to normative groups of school-aged children ever since the 19, ever since about the year 1960 when it was first created. And what this assesses is the degree to which you feel in control of your own life. You feel, I, I'm sort of the master of my fate. I can, I can decide what I want to do. I can, I can solve my own problems and so on and so forth. Versus the degree to which you feel you're kind of the victim of powerful other people, of a world that you can't control, and so on and so forth. Now you would think, other things being equal, that we would feel more of an internal locus of control that our children would today than they did back in, in, in 1960 or certainly back in the 1950s. Because there are actually things we have more control. We can control more diseases than we could in the past. If you were a woman, you'd have a lot more control over your life and a lot more choices and control over your life than you would have back then when all these certain careers were available to you when you were dependent on men for financial support and so on and so forth. If you're African-American, you have a lot more. We haven't solved all the problems by any means, but you have a lot more control of where you can live and what you can do than in the past. But yet, for both genders, for African Americans as well as for whites, locus of control, internal locus of control, since I'm in control of my own life, is much higher for children 
30, 40, 50 years ago than it is today. It has gone down very steeply. Children today largely come out as feeling like they're victims of a world that is beyond Now, how do you develop an internal locus of control? You develop an internal locus of control by experiencing control. And where do children experience control? In play. That is where children are in control. That's where children are not being directed, protected, governed by adults. That's where they have to solve their own problems and they learn they can do it. That's where they climb trees and they learn they can climb a tree and do it. That's where they get into tussles and arguments and their best friend hates them and they find they can survive it. <laughs> they learn, I can deal with the problems of my world. Today, we overprotect, we jump in, we solve the problems for our children, or we don't let them get into the trouble in the first place, so they never have the problem to solve. We believe that's our job as parents. But by doing that, we are preventing them from developing the sense that they can control their own lives, they can solve their own lives. Now, one thing we know, based on the research about internal and external locus of control, this has been known by clinical psychologists for a long time, it is a good thing to have an internal locus of control psychologically, even if it's a somewhat, even if you overbelieve that you have control, even if you believe you have more control than you actually do have, it's a good thing to be in the direction of having a high internal locus of control. It turns out that people are in the direction of high, are psychologically healthy. They are far less likely to become depressed, far less likely to become anxious in life. They're more likely to actually take control they believe they have control, so they assert control. They're more likely to take good control of their health. They're more likely to be uh, concerned about the world around them because they believe they have some control. They're not just passive victims of the evils that they see in the world. They believe they can do something about it. And all of this turns out to create psychological health. So it's a good thing. So here's, here's a causal chain. In addition to the fact that just taking away play is, of course, going to be putting them in situations where they're more or less constantly being monitored and evaluated and measured and judged, compared, and so on, of course it's going to make people anxious. But in addition to that, you take away the opportunity to learn that you can control things by taking away the opportunity to play, which is where children learn that they can control things. They're not going to develop an internal locus of control, and that sets them up for anxiety and depression. It's a scary world, it's a depressive world, a depressing world. If you think that something could happen at any time, and you can't control it. You can't do anything about it. You can't solve those problems yourself. So one more bit of that news. <laughs> this is the least happy talk about play you've ever heard in your life. One more bit of that news is that over the past 30 years, there has been a decline at every grade level in creativity among young children. Well, how do we know that? How can we possibly measure creativity? It turns out that there is a as a, believe it or not, a standardized test of creativity. And it's a valid test. It's Torrance's test of creative thinking. And this has been given to school-age children in all grade levels to normally years for many decades now. We know it's valid because it turns out that people who've done longitudinal studies and those people who, as children, score high on this test turn out to be the people who are far more likely to do really creative things in adulthood, really invent new products, start new companies, write novels, 
to all the kinds of things that we think of as creative contributions to the culture, that other things being equal, those kids who scored high on this test end up being far more creative in their adult life than the kids who score lower. This is by far the best predictor of creative contributions to the culture. It's a much better predictor than IQ. It's a way better predictor than grades in school, which are not a predictor at all, as it turns out. And a better predictor than teachers' predictions about who is going to be creative and productive in adulthood. And a better predictor than peer predictions. The best predictor that we have. We are now living in a world where creativity is probably the most important ability that you have for getting a job. We don't need people who can do non-creative stuff. <laughs> the non-creative stuff is being done by robots, it's being done by computers. We don't need people who can crunch numbers. We don't need people who can spout a lot of information. We don't need people who can do routine boring work. We still have some of those jobs. I don't want to say that they're all gone in the world. But what the, what the world is crying out for, what employers are crying out for, is people who can be creative, people who can ask people who can invent new things, people who can, who, can, who can ask questions that haven't been asked before and find answers to them. We don't need people who can answer questions that have already been answered. We've all got the answers to those in our pocket, on our iPhone, right? You can just look it up. There's no reason to carry a lot of information around in your head. But what we need people is people who have the kind of judgment and common sense and creativity and social abilities do the kinds of things that computers and robots can't do. And those are not the things that we're teaching in school right now, by and large. And those are what we're depriving children of learning by depriving them of play. Because it's in play that you learn those kinds of things more than in any other kind of activity that you might be involved in. I want, also want to comment on, I'm not sure of how much time we've got, let's see what this is. I also want to comment on um, an experience I've had uh, at uh, Boston College and how this generalizes to uh, colleges in general. Since most of you are parents of kids that you think are going to go on to college, first of all, I'd like to encourage you to think that life wouldn't end if they didn't go on to college. There's all kinds of wonderful jobs. I know lots of people have terrific jobs, even making a lot of money if you go to college. I'm very happy not going to college. College should not be the end all and be all, right? But if you're going on to college, here's something that College is becoming difficult. And it's becoming difficult because, not because children are coming to college not academically prepared. It's because they're coming to college not prepared for independent life. And colleges are suffering as a result of this. So I became acutely aware of this a few years ago. I had already retired from teaching. But the head of the counseling department in Boston College invited me to take part in some meetings he was having with professors and with counselors at Boston College. And he started off the meeting by saying, over the five years I've been the head of the mental health um, department here, the counseling office of mental health facilities here at Boston College, the rate of use of the mental health facilities has doubled. And I'm pretty sure that it has doubled in the previous five years, he said. And that it's getting to the point where the mental health problems are overwhelming our ability to, to be the academic institution that we want to be. Professors, and there were professors there who were saying, I'm afraid to give a low grade because I'm afraid the student might have a mental breakdown. Maybe even commit suicide because of a low grade. They're so panicked about the low grade. 
there are kids who are having that. What we, you know, we ask them. So what are the, what are some examples of people what uh, that are causing them to break up? So we gave an example of. So he said just that day, one young woman came in in absolute turmoil and tears and claiming that she had to take a leave of absence from college, that this was so emotionally distressing. When it came down to it, what was the reason for it? So forgive my language here, but she said, my roommate called me a bitch. All right. <laughs> All right, you know, if you've been playing with other kids away from adults, you've probably been called worse than that. <laughs> you've learned that You've learned to take it in context. <laughs> it could be, it could have a lot of different meanings. <laughs> Maybe that was the roommate's <coughs> sense of humor, not a very good sense of humor. Maybe the roommate was temporarily really mad at you. Maybe this is, maybe it's the case that um, you really can't get along with this roommate, in which case the person that I'll be talking to is the people who assign rooms and changing rooms. This should not be a reason to have a mental breakdown. That's not what the counselor said or what the counselor should have said, but this is what I'm saying. So because we have more or less trained our children, if somebody calls you a bad name, that's bullying, that should be traumatic, that's a terrible thing, they've come to believe that's a terrible thing. You know, when I was a kid, one of the things that we were taught to say is, six of stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Now we're teaching children words can hurt you. <laughs> and they're taking it seriously. They're getting hurt by words, right? I mean, instead of just letting it roll off their back. And similarly, let's take romantic breakdowns. Kids are having, are taking leaves of absence because they're having mental breakdowns because their boyfriend or girlfriend left them, right? There's even suicides. We saw people, you know, because of it as well. That's hard. I mean, I've been through romantic breakdowns. I remember what it's like. It's terrible. It's hard. It's no question about it's hard. But it's something you deal with. It's something that you deal with in life. And if you have grown up playing and exploring, you've had the experience. Your very best friend, one day, the next day, they hate you. <laughs> right? I mean, they hate you. And you learn to deal with that. You find some other friends. Or maybe you, maybe eventually that person comes back, you know, but you learn that this is not the end of the world. This is not in every, but because we're overprotecting children. You know, I, I know people, I've heard parents say, refer to not getting, if their kid is not invited to a birthday party, that's bullying, right? I mean, God. <laughs> you know, so the, uh, the, this, is the, this is the world we've created. We've created a world in which the expectation is that these normal disruptions in life are traumas. And therefore, we have to protect our children from these traumas. And then when they go off to college and we can't protect them in the same direct way anymore, they suffer the emotional breakdowns as a result of that. So one of the books that I would recommend that you read, if you haven't already, is a book by Julie Lifgaard-Haynes, who was the dean of freshmen at Stanford when she wrote this book. Uh, and she had observed, the title of the book is How to Raise an Adult. And she had, uh, in her experience at Stanford with freshmen, she saw all these bright kids who were unhappy, <laughs> really unhappy, and who were having emotional breakdowns, and who were, didn't know how to clean their rooms, they didn't know how to do the everyday stuff of life, because they focused so much on the academic training. And she says in her book that this, she had two young children at that time, and I guess there's still some of them. See, she said it completely changed her way of parenting. She stopped paying as much attention to their academics. 
she started insisting that they clean their rooms among other things. And she started insisting that they do some of the chores around the house. But she also said, you really need, she also gave them freedom to play. She said, don't worry so much about the academics. Don't worry about the grades. You need to have opportunities. What are you interested in? Find what you're interested in. And she believes that her children are growing up much more healthy as a result of that. So this is somebody who was the dean of freshmen at the kind of college that probably many of you would wish that your child would get into. And she's saying that the children who are getting into this college are suffering. And they're suffering because their parents have wanted them to get into that college so much that they have deprived their children of the opportunity to do things other than academics. And therefore, they haven't acquired the kinds of skills that are just necessary to deal with, with daily life. So that's, um, I think that the time is pretty close up. So I kind of want to, I, I want to say just a few words about what can be done about this. So I am, um, I'm one of the founders, along with Lenore Skenazy, who wrote the book Free Range Kids, and uh, Jonathan Hope, uh, Jonathan Hyde, who wrote the book um, Colin of the American Mind. We founded a group called uh, Let Grow. And we're working with school systems, we're working with whole communities to bring more play, more real life into children's lives, and to reduce the academic demands, reduce the anxieties, and so on and so forth. So, one of the school systems that we're working with is uh, Patchogue Medford School District in Long Island in New York. Uh, it happened to be that the superintendent of schools here read my book, Free to Learn, and he wanted to do something about his school. He recognized even in elementary school, he's seen signs of anxiety. He's realizing that the kids are being hurt by what's happening in his public school system. And he wanted to do something about it. And so we've worked with him. And let me just tell you some of the changes that he's made in his schools to just give you an idea of what can be done. He's somewhat courageous to take these steps, but he's been rewarded for it. He's become somewhat famous for it. And sadly, for that school district, he's been attracted away to a bigger school district. But what he did is, first of all, he did away with homework in elementary school. Hmm. Secondly, he increased recess. Third, he told teachers, don't be so concerned about the curriculum. Be more concerned about whether your kids are happy in the class, whether they seem engaged in the classroom, and so on and so forth. Use your common sense. You know kids better than the authorities who develop this curriculum. You know what they need better than the curriculum developers do. And the best predictor of happiness in adulthood is happiness in childhood. And if we're making kids unhappy in the classroom, we're not doing them a service, no matter how much we think we're teaching them skills of doing so. And, um, and then in addition to all of that, he instituted what he calls play club. It turns out in schools, in public schools, at least anything that's not a course is a club. <laughs> so this is play club. And his goal, which what I'm really hoping for, is that play club would meet every day after school for the entire period of time between when the school day ends and when parents are home for work, three hours of free play at school, all grades combined, making use of the art room, the gymnasium, the swimming pool, if there's a swimming pool, the outdoor playground, everything in the school available for play, have, have some adults have monitoring the play and make it clear that it's safe enough, but not to intervene, not to think of it as a teaching opportunity, not to be controlling, just be like lifeguards on the beach. Well, he, uh, 
he, there's all kinds of roadblocks, as you probably know, there's all kinds of problems doing this within the schools. They have to do with legal issues, lawyers warning you about this and that, have to do with teachers' unions, regulations, and so on and so forth. So he started small with just one hour a week before school rather than after school. I thought that wasn't going to be enough. But it turns out that even that one hour a week has had a huge effect on the school. I was concerned that because it's before school, the kids would not want to get up an hour early and come to school, even for play. It turns out they all do. They all want to come. They're all coming. This is the highlight of their week, is free play, just free play. There, and they, and, there, and there's, there's typically 150 kids there, in one, at, at least in his average size school. 150 kids there, age 5 through 11, all playing together. I've been there observing because uh, ABC, the news out program, did a segment on it and they wanted me to be there to comment on it. And I could see that there were kids running in the hallways, which they normally would never be allowed to do. There's kids tossing balls down from balconies. There's kids roughhousing. There's kids doing all kinds of stuff that they'd never be allowed to do in school. There's two rules that, the, that, are, that the kids have to follow. One is you can't break anything, and the other is you can't hurt anybody. And they look like they're playing rough, but they are not breaking anything, and they are not hurting anything. They are not hurting one another. And when there's a little squabble among the little kids, what I saw over and over is some older kid would come over and settle his own. A couple of five or six-year-olds get into a little tussle about something, and a nine or ten-year-old would come over and say, hey, what's going on here? Let me see, let's, let's solve this problem. The teachers are learning, they're developing a higher understanding of of the children, that they did not think were competent to control themselves. They're learning that they really can control themselves. It should be no surprise. In the past, children were always playing with no adults around in these kinds of places. They always, they never, they were rarely killed. <laughs> right? they, and they, and, you know, it doesn't mean that, that everything was perfect. And in fact, the fact that it wasn't perfect, the fact that they had problems, that the fact that there were some things they had to learn to deal with, that's also part of it. So what I'm saying here is that there are things that we can do about it in the culture, and schools can play a major role in this. Part of the job of educators, in my opinion, whenever I talk to educators, is to educate parents about the fact that play is, if anything, more important than academic training. The things that are most important for people to learn in life cannot be taught in the classroom. How to initiate your own activities, how to be creative, how to make friends, how to tell whether your friends like you or not. Um, all of these kinds of things are acquired in play. All of the, these are the things that create a happy life. And these are even the things that allow you to be well employed in adulthood, especially in our world today. So the big message that I'm presenting here is that never should we deprive children of play for the sake of yet more academic training. We need to be moving in the opposite direction, less academic training and more opportunity for creativity. So thank you very much.